Welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Joja. I'm with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute and Dali Buruhaj, also from AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, it's just um, the three of us, and uh, we just went uh, in preparing for this um, episode through all the topics that we want to talk about or should be talking about, and they're endless. Um, so we're trying to not make it um, too long, but I guess we want to start with um, one step removed from the Eastern Front, and that's Western Europe. Um, we, have, um, yeah, <laughs> we have, yeah, we have a a few issues to rant about when it comes to Germany, France, the EU, and we'll get later to NATO as well. Um, but Giselle, do you want to get started with Germany well, and France? Yeah, but and and I want to rant about uh, the uh, f flagging of uh, willpower in the United States as well. Uh, we've, you know, just been through um, uh, a brief primary season um, when particularly the uh, hard right candidates, the sort of Trumpist uh, wing of the Republican Party, if that's distinguishable from the establishment wing, has, has pretty clearly congealed uh, against, um, or at least hedging against, uh, long-term aid to Ukraine, um, uh, you know, and sort of almost following a, a, a French and German line about the need to avoid humiliating mm. uh, Vladimir Putin uh, and so on. I mean, this this language of appeasement, I can't really, that's what it is, uh, has, has spread uh, to the, certainly to the uh, right-wing cadre in the United States. And you also have to wonder, too, about... Um, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, who are continuing to support their president, uh, but um, you know, come the fall, if there's a uh, electoral setback for uh, the Democrats, you know, whether they'll maintain that discipline and that support, uh, or go back to their natural uh, anti-war uh, habitat. Uh, so, so in this uh, uh, right and left, where does Kissinger fit in? Uh, well, I mean, you're referring to the speech that Henry Kissinger, Henry the K, all 98 years old of him, <laughs> uh, delivered at the Davos World Forum. <laughs> Correct. Uh, obviously, he hasn't gotten the word that Davos is no longer cool. <laughs> Too old to get that word. Well, you see, he he. he said the Ukrainians have to trade land for peace, basically, um, um, which was, first of all, in direct opposition to what President Zelensky uh, has said. Um, so, you know, to the degree that Kissinger still confers a legitimacy on um, anything, 
uh, and is sort of the uh, father figure of the restrainer slash realist uh, uh, community in the United States and probably in the West more broadly. He, you know, uh, aligned himself with the uh, let's cut a deal with Putin crowd, which is very unfortunate. Doesn't it seem to you, both of you, that Kissinger and Macron and others seem to be operating in this grand 20th century policy um, and that in that they cannot wrap their heads? It seems to um, I guess the Ukrainians called it a psychological barrier in accepting that Russia is not a superpower. But I think That's part of it. The other part that makes it so um, scandalous and outdated nowadays is the fact that they're almost taking pride in the end indirectly for not caring about human rights um, and for not caring about the will of the people, if you want to call it that, because, you know, Ukraine has made more than a multitude of times clear that um, any decision will be taken by referendum and no Ukrainian president, Zelensky or whoever is next, um, can, um, can move away from that without being quickly removed from power. I think that's pretty clear. And we have a support of what, 82% most recently um, among Ukrainians not to give up any territory. So Kissinger and Macron coming back again and again and saying, Ukraine must give up territory, which means that territory will be subjected to filtration, to deportation, to an absolute violation of human rights in front of our eyes is something that we support. Is that, is um, that it? Not, not, not quite sure what the sort of psychology of, 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 of this is, but I think the politics is very straightforward, that you had this brief moment of unity and, and, and shock at the level of just barbarism and 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 just this sort of you know atavistic character of the attack like, that, that looked like something that really harked from another very different from a different era and 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 so so around that shock you had a policy change that has sort of congealed for a, for a, for a bit yet the longer the war goes on and the more tedious it gets from the perspective of western observers like there's not that much changing on the on the on 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 the front when you sort of look at it from 40,000 feet you don't necessarily see new horrifying images from places like 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 like, like Bucha. and it's all sort of distant and at the same time uh as a politician you realize to the fact that actually standing with ukraine carries costs Right, like we are going to live in a world of higher energy prices, higher food prices, food shortages. Um, you just want the problem to go away. I think that's that's what's driving uh, the attitude in Berlin, in Paris, and 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 will likely drive the attitude of of, of Americans even more as we go into into the midterm season. Well, I am not willing to or. Un- unwilling to psychologize about this. (laughs) Go ahead. I think these guys uh, are like cosplaying the concert of Vienna. You know, they they draw lots for who gets to be Metternich, who gets to be Talleyrand, and who gets to be Bismarck. And they all sit around and play realist uh, or balance of power, wherein 
you know, the outcome doesn't matter as much as the process or the personalities. And that had a kind of, you know, not that that is really, a, you know, isn't an important consideration, but it's become sort of reified and dumbed down and particularly migrated into the American foreign policy community as the alternative to what is the American tradition, where the cause of liberty and human rights and yeah. uh, trying to achieve justice in international affairs um, is not only as important as the balance of power, but an important element in the balance of power um, that, that makes it easier for us to have alliances, uh, tells us how we know uh, when a significant geopolitical success has achieved and so on and so forth. So, you know, this strain is all, usually submerged, usually complaining about the fact that nobody listens to them. Um, and they're, they, I think, feel threatened a little bit that the normal traditions will be brought back to the surface again by... Um, the Ukraine situation. You have you have uh, several columns every day about the reemergence of the foreign policy blob uh, from disgruntled, um, you know, both uh, commentators from the right and the left. So uh, we have it in uh, in the U.S. in terms of neorealism, and we have it in Europe in terms of. Um, Realpolitik and being a true politician, I guess. Um, and then or the being a Gaullist. <laughs> yeah, the the last thing maybe to add to that in terms of, um, you know, comparing to the reality on the ground is that we see now this flurry of voices louder and louder, like Henry the K, <laughs> um, in the context of. Um, something else that is on people's minds and that's very real. Now, perhaps you cannot point the fingers to the people, but it's there. And that's the Black Sea blockade um, where Russia has mined the entire territory and is now be, um, asking once the US and the UK and a bunch of other Western actors are saying we need to resolve this because of a food crisis. I think it was on the front page of The Economist. Um this week, last week, um, world food crisis looming or, or for certain. Um, because of that, we need to lift the blockade. Um, no one is going to, from the West, is going to put, I think, military ships in direct confrontation with um, Russia. And so Russia is saying, yeah, we can do that if you lift some of the sanctions, which is still in the cards if you ask some Europeans. Um, but at the same time, Russia is stealing grain and trying to sell it and is basically saying we don't care if um, we are creating a, a global food crisis. Um, and so we are in a conundrum where we have no solutions and we're trying to ship it out by rail through multiple ways out of Ukraine, but that's not going to be making for more up than 20% of what they have to export. And... Um, and so we're connecting the Black Sea to a global food crisis, all because Russia has managed to completely deter the West there. 
And this time it's we're talking about, I'm afraid, about humanitarian corridors in the opposite direction. But there is a parallel between humanitarian corridors promised in Mariupol and what is happening to those 2,000 or so um, brave soldiers that are now in Russian detention and we promised something that we weren't ready to deliver. And now we're talking about millions of people and famine. So um, the words of people like Henry Kissinger sound particularly troubling to me right now. Exactly. I think it's always worth connecting the sort of intellectual debate with sort of specific policy decisions that have immediate impact on people on the ground, whether it's you know the the grain export situation or whether it's sanctions so we used to have you know unity of some kind in europe on 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 sanctions we no longer have unity on sanctions it seems uh and i'm happy to talk a little bit about the sort of oil embargo question uh and we don't have unity about you know what is ukraine's place in europe going forward once this war is over that's the other I think dividing line within within the European Union, and and we could have a parallel conversation about NATO at some point. Uh, but very clearly, uh, Macron said that EU membership is out of the question for the foreseeable future. He said, you know, ten, fifteen years, which might mean you know twenty, thirty, or you know, just outside of the realm of of what is politically available. You would have thought earlier in this war that that really that shock of the invasion just scrambled things and that we really entered, you know, Zeitenwende mm. and, and this, things would be sort of permanently different, but but that doesn't seem to have doesn't seem to have materialized. And it's sometimes it's sort of tempting to, you know, like blame it on like crazy outlier governments. Like, you know, like Viktor Orban is very sort mm-hmm. of, you know, explicit about being on, on, on Putin's side. Um but you have to wonder uh, whether you know the EU could have moved ahead with oil embargo, you know, at EU twenty six without without Hungary, right? Like you know, let Hungarians import Russian oil. I know there are complicated factors to all this, which have to do with the EU single market and whether Hungarians could resell the processed oil in the EU. But like you know, let let let, let, let why, why don't we let those play in courts? And in the meantime, Russia will be bleeding money. Uh, but there seems to be zero, zero willingness to do that right now. And 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 that's what's disappointing to me. And and I think we should have a conversation also about, you know, what that means for the for for those who continue to be concerned with, with Russia's behavior and want to push back and want to stand with Ukraine. I think that need there is a real need to you know, for, for, for people like us, so to speak, both in the US and, and in Europe to just think about how we can work around countries that, that are obstacles to a sort of more serious and and more constructive policy. Perhaps it's um it we first have to identify who are those that um are blocking it. Because it's not just Hungary and it's not just France. And we already see now maybe a first step in going back to, I would say, an old habit with a, with a risk of overgeneralizing, and that is um, of treating those who are supportive of these things um, 
with um, with how should I call it unreliability just put it elegantly and I'm thinking about the latest example in Polish-German relations where the Poles donated their tanks um, to Ukraine in exchange for German tanks promised by the German government and now the Polish government is accusing the German government of not delivering on its promise which literally means that Poland feels um that it uh, cannot defend itself as well as it should um, and increases the threat perception in Poland, etc. So um, what do we make of that? It seems like the loyal, most loyal allies of Ukraine right now are almost getting punished. It, 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 like the, That to me is probably the most shocking part of it, that, that you would think of the Germans for whatever the, you know, whatever the flaws might be, that they are reliable, right? And we've been told that it's very hard to change policy consensus in a country like Germany, but once it changes, the new sort of equilibrium sticks and the elites sort of stand by these new commitments. Uh, and it's just, you know, the sort of general sense of German culture as being, you know, punctual and reliable and and and, 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 and direct. Uh, yet, you know, you see German promise of, of this, you know, Gepard anti-air tanks, being delivered to Ukraine, and now then we learn that well, they won't be really shipped until mid July. Um, yeah. You obviously have the the the, the 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 Polish story, and you really have a sort of this like double faced sort of attitude from 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 from, from Berlin, which I mean to me is very disappointing, and I think it's just undermining the role. I mean, all the all the sort of political capital that that Berlin has accumulated over the years as as sort of the you know the Definitely. central country of of the EU and Angela Merkel, also the sort of you know kind of honest broker in in in, in dealing with all these different sort of crises and and and, and forging of compromises, like it, it's very hard to see Berlin playing that role again if if if, if this continues. So before we wrap up, I think it's worth diving another level or two deeper into the situation in France and Germany and maybe speculate a bit about what that means for um, NATO in the future. Um, Emmanuel Macron has been the as truculent as any other uh, um, uh, European leader in uh, seeming to uh, be reluctant to embrace uh, Ukraine, particularly in the EU, but you also have to wonder whether this is a, going to be a problem uh, for cobbling out a strategy at the level of NATO uh, in, at the summit upcoming. And likewise, the Germans continue to send mixed messages about uh, what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do, you sort of get the feeling that both these countries and both these leaders sort of wish they could turn the clock back to February 20th um, and go back to business as normal. But I'd be interested in what you two have to, you know, whether you would affirm that or modify it in any way. Yeah, I think uh, the only thing that I'm going to say to this is, to me, this connects to, again, 
what we haven't found the right concept to use, but the, I'll use the Ukrainian one um, in the absence of another one, the psychological barrier of accepting that Russia is not a superpower, that it is and will and has to um, lose this war in order to have peace in the region, um, long-standing peace. Everybody knows that, but people have trouble accepting it. And and with the risk of overgeneralizing, I see the exact same patterns of thinking and um, barriers or blockades, really thinking blockades, in leaders and um, elites and um, people who look at foreign policy and write about it in the region as well, where people have a completely different um, experience with Russia, but still many of them having grown up either in the Soviet Union or outside of it um, in the former Warsaw Pact region, um, have cannot accept what is actually happening in front of our eyes and has been happening for the last 30, uh, for the last three months. Um, I don't know why that is, uh, but um, but I think it it's not generational because Macron is a lot younger than Kissinger, well, right? Kissinger. Um, but, but it seems to be the same pattern, <laughs> the same pattern of thinking. Dalibor? I, again, like I go, go back to... You know, Occam's razor and 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 the sort of more more most simplistic accounts of 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 these things. I fear that a big part of Germany's and France's political elites and the voting publics are just not willing to bear the sacrifices and costs that are needed for Ukraine to achieve a decisive victory and 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 drive Russians out of of Ukraine. People look at the past seven years see a frozen conflict in ukraine and wonder like you know was it was it really that bad like why why can't we mm. just acquiesce to whatever the russians want in some way and and, and slap a minsk three sort of label on it and we'll just live with it and you know it's it's ukraine it's far enough uh we don't want high energy prices we don't want high food prices um we definitely don't want to be shipping weapons for the next five years to to defeat the Russians, and and this goes hand in hand with with a you know certain degree of of sort of condescension towards Eastern Europe. So so very clearly, the same people don't want Ukraine in the EU, and and, and maybe the most the most charitable reading of that is that there is a trade off between bringing in more members and the imperative of deepening the EU, which is what. You know, people like Macron care about first and foremost, and yeah. and I think that that, that that's where we are bearing something, you know, truly horrific happening in Ukraine. I think that's 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 the situation that will that we'll have to deal with. And and, and to me, and maybe this goes beyond the, the the time frame of our of our current episode. We we should think about, you know, how the Poles, Americans, Brits. Other Eastern Europeans can just work around those constraints and 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 still help Ukraine succeed and still ensure that Ukraine has a European future, which is more substantive than 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 just sort of the empty empty phrases that are coming from from EU. Well, I would certainly second the idea of 
speculating about at least what a European security framework, but maybe even also a, a different economic and social framework would look like in a way that, I mean, if we just think about this from an American point of view, sacrificing our security interests on the altar of EU niceties, I mean, this is beginning to have consequences or, or to present consequences uh, for costly ones our security interests uh, in europe um well to, to me that the response to that is that is that sort of institutions whether it's nato or the eu like they're not god-given entities like you can like work within their confines you can you know like negotiate the arrangements that supersede those like even if you know let's imagine that ukraine wanted to join nato and we you know want ukraine in nato but there'll be a bunch of countries that will say no and it's likely that there would be, you know, somebody or other vetoing it. Uh, yet, you know, if, if 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 there is a political agreement in 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 the United States on the importance of Ukraine security, like the U.S. could extend security guarantees to Ukraine that would be just as good as NATO NATO membership without having to consult with with Berlin and. And Paris. And one last thing in this context, maybe just to throw it out there, maybe the start of institutionalizing um, some of these things has been done this week, um, apropos updates, when um, Poland spoke in, uh, in the uh, Supreme Rada in Ukraine and they lifted barriers and imposed um, some kind of equality in citizenship rights. That to me, of course, it's symbolic, but it um, it looks more and more for the first time as a grand alliance and think about the power of Ukraine and Poland in the long run together and what they can do as allies with the UK and the United I mean that's exactly that. That that like these these institutional arrangements that we have and are great and I love both the EU and NATO. They are not set in stone. Um and uh and if if they sort of don't fit the the needs of the present moment well, we'll have to create new ones, and 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 without really being held back by, by 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 those who are sort of, you know, indulging in 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 their own complacency and and just have different priorities. Dalibor, you have my vote for doing a dedicating an episode to the exploring what this might mean, but I just have to say I'm I'm that would push. Germany in particular into an explicit kind of free rider status that I think would be really uh, corrosive to not just the alliance but the bilateral relationship and might force me never to have well, to buy the, another... the departure from the status yeah, quo would right. that be? I like my BMWs. I want to <laughs> I want to be able to drive a big fat German car with a clean conscience. <laughs> from my friends. Giselle Donnelly and Dalibor Rohaj. And me. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod in one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, 
rating and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.